You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with cinematographer Chase Irvin. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. And I basically was using this jazz technique called woodshedding, where you basically isolate yourself and you come up with harmonic devices that then you can put in your pocket and play during the set. And it's sort of like you create events where you can stimulate happy accidents. So I was doing that, I think, over a six-month period. And I came up with a lot of different ideas. For example, the sequence where Marilyn's in the menage a trois and she's having a three-way sex scene and the image is distorting and it's creating... Like I found that idea. I went to Canal Plastics in New York and I ordered a piece of polycarbonate that was mirrored on one side and I was able to bend it. And I would shoot stuff in my studio, collaborating with Jack Martinez, a photographer who would cast different people and we would shoot things together. And basically through pre-production, I created, I couldn't even count how many cinematic devices. And it, they were happy accidents in a lot of ways, but in other situations, they were gifts that were given to me by collaborators. And I just had those in my pocket. And a lot of times they would come out spontaneously. Like if I saw a scene and I felt like there was a moment in which we could articulate in a more abstracted point of view, the core of the scene, let's do it. And I didn't always know those, the meanings behind it. It was much more intuitive than intellectual. But then Andrew also would contribute to that because he knew the ideas I would develop and he would know where to use them better than I would because he had written the film. So, I mean, he had a real, real understanding of what emotions were going on inside of her. And he wouldn't necessarily give those to me all the time or nor would I ask. I didn't want to get too much of that in my head because a lot of times even how a scene is depicted is so much informed by how the actor uh, or actress uh, Anna de Armas would interpret that dialogue or that emotion. In some ways, it could be very connecting, in other ways, very alienating. And the same dialogue exists in the screenplay, but it could be portrayed with two vastly different emotions. So I would always try to let my ideas be a response to that. So then I go into like, okay, in certain ways, I'm using my intellect and we're making these connections, but then I'm also trying to do things such as, okay, so the whole concept of subjectivity in a film is like you're representing a particular character's point of view, but there's another way to express that is through mise-en-scene. So you can express a character, you could have a complete tableau and, and create the perceiving classical frame, but maybe it's the green on the wall that expresses her inner desire or the warm light. So you create these metaphors that are actually expressing the psychological experience of the character through the physical space you're feeling. It, it does take a lot of courage. That type of sentiment didn't come to me automatically when I first started becoming a cinematographer. It was sort of developed over time. Because as you see the successes and failures of your expression of your craft, you sort of latch on to certain things that work and you stay away from things that didn't work. And for me, it was just the more risky things, I guess, the more things that defied expectations were really important to me. And I guess it even goes down to just like novelty. How do you create a need or a yearning in the spectator? You create a particular rhythm and then you change that rhythm. And then it's almost like a 
you try to sensitize your spectator to these ideas by defying a particular rhythm that you've set for them. It's kind of an abstract way to describe it, but that's the best I can think of. Yeah, I think we're sort of in a period where there's a lack of permissiveness. And I think there's sort of a constant moralistic debate about the rightness and wrongness of thing that's consumed. Like in America, there was even a debate about abortion and stuff like that stimulated by the film. But in our own mind, that was not a theme that Andrew and I discussed. It was much more about how she would have liked things to have happened differently in her life. You know, it was more a stimulus for emotions. It wasn't like a political thing that we were considering. So we're just in this moment, I think, in the collective consciousness of America. It's sort of captured in that kind of like, I guess I would label it violence. But in a way, I have always been curious about how people will perceive or receive the film as a collective, because I think it had some controversial ideas in it. And one of the things that I value most about the film is that the the reaction to the film was actually a part of the artistic endeavor itself, because it is dealing with popular culture and how the collective views the persona and an individual and who the persona is outside of the individual. And the collective contributed to that film in that way, because they're projecting a version of Marilyn that they've consumed, that they have a connection with that our film violates. So it was like, for me, the movie was actually the reaction. (laughs) You know, Beyonce, she's been a musician her whole life. She's been an icon since she was like 14 or 15 or something like that, 16, you know, for so young. And when we were doing Lemonade, Khalil Joseph and I, we talked a lot about how Beyonce must have maybe skipped this moment in our lives that most people have where we're coming up in our 20s sort of discovering ourselves in lemonade we were really trying to explore that she's coming to herself now that she has a daughter and that she's married and she's trying to harness a family life and these themes that she was singing about in the music we were sort of trying to consider that and how we were going to tell that story too And then also legacy and family. And, you know, that was the reason why we shot in New Orleans. On Lemonade specifically, we didn't do any treatment or anything. Khalil and I met in New Orleans and we started scouting. And through the scouting period, we come up with the concept and the ideas. But the scouting's unique even because we're basically connecting with liaisons. So we're connecting with the fiancé family member. We're connecting with the security guy that runs security for Beyonce there in New Orleans. And that guy, you know, he used to be a stripper at a strip club when he was in his early 20s. And we're going to the strip club and we're seeing all his friends who are laughing at him. And it's like, all of a sudden you get to an alien part of a culture that exists as an underbelly that is so hard to access because everyone's basically presenting a stereotype typically. So then that's sort of what we were trying to get to on that. And that was really intuitive for Khalil's way of working, who also I consider an art tour director. I think it was Kafka who said, all languages but poor translation, something like that. I might be butchering the quote, but 
I like that a lot. I think about it a lot. I feel like what we are trying to communicate or what we're trying to say about something or how we're doing all these ideas, all these things, all these feelings are going through these things that are distorted or fragmented. We can never really communicate with absolute clarity what is going on. We're too limited. There's not a word for it, you know, and uh, I like that. I think what it is to be human is to be less than perfect. And when I watch films and I see these scenes that sometimes make me feel sick or other times they make me happy, but they're executed with imperfections or maybe there's something wrong. You know, maybe the camera sort of conceals a moment that you would have liked to have seen, but then all of a sudden it becomes an interpretation because you're creating it in your mind because it's been concealed. But when you create it in your mind, you're projecting something from your own experiences as a human being onto the scene because you're going into memory. There's a lot going on. And those are all virtues to me. Those are all the things that make it beautiful because they are an articulation of humanness. And that's the thing that contributes most to a film is just really giving it your all. That's all I can do on a movie. I can't really make a movie good or not because that's decided by the spectator. That's not in my control. All I can do is give it everything that I have. Like, that's just the love I have to give. So why bring in all these other things? Just set it up so you can give it everything that you got each time in those theoretical considerations about how a scene can function or be rendered or shot or executed or all these things. Just think of it as, oh, this is the challenge. I want authenticity. How do we create an environment that where that's more likely to happen? Because it's never going to be something that I can enforce. And the more I try to enforce it, the less likely it'll happen. So it's very tricky. It's a lot. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There's definitely times where I think back like I would have liked to have done that differently. But that's always going to be the feeling no matter how well you do it. You know, That was like a really confusing period for me because I felt very connected to Spike. And I just moved to New York at the time. And what a welcoming hand, like one of the you know, the king of Brooklyn sort of being like, welcome to New York, you know, and uh, I just moved there. So it was like such a gift. When I reflect on the material, to be honest with you, the reason that I took the film was actually much more about a need to feel connected to my father. And when I read the part of the script where the guys in the KKK blow up in a car bomb, <laughs> I just saw my dad laughing in my mind and it's sitting in the theater laughing because he would have found that so funny and ironic and that's why i took the film was so i could give him that gift of laughter because i found meaning in that and the challenges of like in the pre-production period spike has his way of working and it's sort of fun and it's not as serious it's like things just made sense to him in a way that with other directors i've worked with not so much. Like there's such a difference between Spike Lee and Andrew Dominic. It's like crazy. Andrew Dominic, he would do great harm to himself to make the movie that he would want to make. Like great harm. So hardcore. I've never seen anything like it. Endless working, obsessing about a film, calling me in the wee hours of the morning or evening. And then it was just kind of like sporadic, but sincere and charming. And then Spike is much more like 
he has his office at 40 acres. He puts in work down there when he's on his other times, he's like on CNN or he's hosting a party with his family or he's at the Knicks or like a Yankees game or other things like he has sort of this other life and he's also a persona. So even just walking around with him, he's like one of the most recognizable figures in America. So he's also playing a role. It was really fascinating learning from both of them, but I don't remember so well preconceiving Black Klansmen. I remember, I guess the thing that I remember is on day one of the shoot and seeing how the actors were portraying these characters, my interpretation of the film completely changed. And I was totally going off of my instincts from that point on. Because when you read the screenplay, you're hearing these racist things, but they're not necessarily coming off the same way as the actor portrays them. The KKK guys are like buffoons and, you know, they're not so realistic. But then Adam Driver is actually a really realistic actor. So then all of a sudden it's like you're watching these scenes get blocked and rehearsed. And it's like, whoa, what's going on? This is not what I read. So then you instantly go and, okay, I'm going to do this and we'll do this. And, you know, you sort of just come out of that based off of your instincts. So it was fun. And so I started experimenting in different things. And that journey has taken me on kind of a different route. Like for a while, I've only done one movie a year. And then I may not do a movie that year, but I'm doing a lot of fine art. Or, you know, I work with Adam Pendleton and Dina Lawson and Khalil Joseph and just fine artists. And we'll do works that'll be exhibited in museums and stuff like that. But I'm always just getting opportunities to sort of express what I'm feeling at the time. Whereas if I had a different need, I might have just concentrated on films. And then I would have, you know, there's projects that have come on my doorstep that have been big budget projects that, you know, superhero or whatnot, but I've always declined because I really have a need for freedom. And when I say that, I mean, specifically, freedom of interference from others. And I know that when you're spending a certain amount of money, you will get that interference. But then there's the other form of freedom, which is having the resources to act on your free will. So really the only way that I get those opportunities is working with guys like Spike Lee, where he gets the resources just enough to act on his free will, but then he also protects the film so there's no interference and he'll get rid of anyone who's messing with that. And so I just try to find directors with a like mind and I'm lucky to work with them. And I hope to travel my whole career working with people like that or my whole life, you know. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.